Thank you, Ben, for that great illustration of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, if you would please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians, the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at several verses, uh, but some of our main texts will be Philippians 1 and 2. And let's go to the Lord together in prayer as we begin looking into His Word. Father, we are thankful for this time of worship this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to look into Your Word. We pray that Your Holy Spirit who inspired it would illuminate it to our hearts and minds, apply it to our lives, and help us to respond to it in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about discipleship and this discipleship process that we are in as believers, growing and working together. Discipleship is far more than a program. It's more than just a Bible study on a certain night of the week. It is a way of life for the Christian. It is a journey, a process of spiritual growth as we become disciples, as we make disciples, as we work together so that we become more like Jesus. And it begins the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus and that discipleship journey lasts all the way until we someday stand in His presence and hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so our church, a number of years ago, adopted what we call the Disciples Path. And it's sort of like a map, a way for us to visualize and examine our spiritual growth as Christians, beginning with what we talked about last week, and that is come to worship. And come to worship includes personal times of worship, family times of worship throughout the week, but especially we focused on the importance and value of gathering together as the body of Christ, with our brothers and sisters in Jesus to worship Him together. And we start with worship on this discipleship path because worship is what we are created to do. It's what we will spend an eternity doing, being in that love relationship with God, enjoying His presence and giving Him glory. And really, if you think about it, the rest of that discipleship process is all about preparing us to worship and be in the presence of God and to go out and to bring other people to join us on that journey so they too can know, love, and worship Jesus with us. Now, our Disciples' Path has four stops on it that we're looking at in this sermon series, but you can also kind of break it up into two focuses, two aspects of this journey. And Paul writes about this twofold journey of discipleship in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And Paul's talking about the persecution that he has endured. And he says, What's happened to me has actually advanced, moved forward the gospel. Well, then down in verse 25, he says, Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress, for your advancement, for your moving on, and, and joy in the faith. Now, this is the same Greek word Paul uses in both of these verses, and it does mean to advance, to progress, to move forward. And so Paul's explaining this twofold aspect of Christian discipleship the outward journey of advancing the gospel to reach the unsaved people of the world, and the inward journey of our own spiritual walk and growth. So, in your notes, you've got two blanks there. The outward journey is about the progress of the gospel through service and evangelism and disciple-making. And the inward journey is about our progress in the gospel, which is moving toward 
full maturity in Christ Jesus. So we are going to talk about that outward journey more next week and the week after, after that, but we're going to focus today on this inward journey. And we can look at Paul's words to the Philippians for a couple of key takeaways about this. And the first we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and that is that we are responsible for our own walk. So the first thing Paul's going to tell us about this inward journey of spiritual growth is that we are responsible, each of us, for our own spiritual journey. Look what he says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work, according to His good purpose. Now, what does Paul mean by working out our salvation in fear and trembling? Paul is not saying that we are working for our salvation, does he? He says, work out your salvation. We're not working for a salvation we don't have yet. We're working out a salvation we've already received in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul further makes this clear in what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He said, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship. So Paul's saying, we're not saved by our work. Rather, we are His work. We are the workmanship of, of God created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we are not saved from our work. We are not saved by work. We are saved for work. We are saved to do good work. So if you look back at what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2, he is encouraging us to make our salvation fruitful. To make our salvation bear not only the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of more disciples. It's a call for a continuous effort on our part, one that we pursue with fear and trembling so that we are not working for His grace, we are working out His grace. We're allowing the grace we receive from Jesus Christ to flow out of us into the lives of others. And that's what Paul goes on in verse 13 to explain, that it is God who is at work in us, not me. I can take no credit for it. It is God who is at work in us to give us the desire and the ability to do good works so that people will see them and give glory to our Father in heaven. Does that make sense? We are not saved by work. We are saved to work. We are His workmanship. He works in and through us to accomplish His purposes. And God is calling us to partner with Him in that desire, in that ability for us to grow into the fullness of stature in Christ Jesus. And how do we do that? How can you and I partner with God in this spiritual transformation in our lives, in this renewing of our mind, and this bearing fruit of the Spirit to become more like Jesus? Well, one way is through personal spiritual disciplines. We can participate and partner with God in His work in our life through our own personal spiritual disciplines. And that begins chiefly with Bible intake, that we are taking God's Word in through, through reading and through study and through meditation and memorization. We are allowing the Word of God to be planted in our hearts. We do it through prayer. We do it through observing times of Sabbath rest. 
by being good stewards of the resources God has given us through, through daily personal times of examination and confession and repentance. These are biblical and historic Christian practices that are ways in which we allow God's Word to work its way into the soil of our heart and we allow God's Spirit to, to prune us and to weed us and to chip away at the sinful flesh that is still in us and bring out the ways of Christ to shine through us. So we, we work together with the Spirit and the Word of God to mold and shape us into Christ-likeness. But it doesn't stop there, and that's important. It's important for us to take that ownership, to spend time personally, daily, regularly in these spiritual disciplines. But we aren't saved to be Lone Ranger Christians, are we? God doesn't just save individual people. God is always, going all the way back to the beginning, God has always been about bringing people together into His presence. He has saved us to be in community with other believers. As I said last week, we are members of one body. We are each stones in one spiritual house. We are brothers and sisters of one family of God. So while... We are responsible for our own spiritual walk. Paul secondly tells us we are responsible for each other's walk. We're responsible for one another as well. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Remember, not long ago, we were in Jude. We were talking about contending for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. Paul says we don't contend for the faith by ourselves. We contend together for the faith. So while we are responsible for our own spiritual growth, we don't and we can't do it alone. We have God's help, but we also have the help of God's family, the church. We grow in our faith we become more like Jesus. We bear the fruit of the Spirit in community and we follow Jesus, each one of us, on a path crowded with other Christ followers. Amen? We are on this journey together and we need each other. We need each other for accountability to the truth, way, and life of Jesus. We, to keep each other going when the going gets tough. To help pick each other up when we fall to encourage each other along in those good works and to keep each other on the path when the world tries to distract us and tempt us away from it. We need each other. And I have found that the best, most time-proven way for us to journey into Christ-likeness is in groups, through small group relationships. Now, at our church, that can be a traditional Sunday school class on Sunday morning. It can be another small group study that we have meeting at other times and, and places during the week. But it's important for us to build those close personal relationships within the body of Christ that you can't necessarily do sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Now, I'm going to share with you three reasons why I think it's vital that you find yourself in a small group relationship, in a Bible study, in a Sunday school class. The first is that small groups shape us. They shape us into Christ-likeness. Remember in the Great Commission, Jesus says that we are to, uh, to proclaim the gospel, to go make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey all the things that He has commanded us. 
And we can look in Acts chapter 2 at the first church. It's a great model for us, uh, very instructive for us about this. You think about that early church. How did these Jews and these pagans, right? These Jews and these pagan Roman and Greek worshipers that worship this pantheon of gods, how did these people come together and transition into becoming Christians, not Jews? Christians, not pagan idol worshipers. How were they able to leave behind their past? Many of them, their families, their careers, their reputations. How could they stand firm and endure persecutions and imprisonments and rejection by people that they love and even execution? How could they do this? Well, something real powerful and lasting had to happen in their lives. Amen? They came to faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. But secondly, there was something ongoing that enabled them and strengthened them to continue in this. We see it in Acts 2.42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. When we come together in fellowship, shared around a common table, in prayer to the same God, and we sit under the clear teaching of God's Word, that is when we can be presented to God approved as workers who do not need to be ashamed, who can correctly handle the Word of truth. That's how we can be transformed and stand firm is when we do that. Yes, as I said, there's great value in our own personal study of God's Word. And I encourage every one of us need to be spending time in the Bible on our own every day. But when I come to the Bible, you know what? I come to it through my own lens. When I study the Bible, it is colored for me by my own perspectives, my own political views, my own education, my own background, how I was raised, my culture. How we approach Scripture is colored by our, pers- our past hurts and failures and struggles with sin. And so I need other people to help me see past my blind spots when I study God's Word. I need your perspective. I need to share from you your life experiences so that I don't miss out on hearing what God has to say to me about a part of my life that I'd rather not look at. We all have those parts of our lives that we'd rather kind of just sweep under the rug, put in a, in a room, close the door, turn off the light, pretend like it's not there. But when we come to God's Word together in small groups, we can't do that. At FBC, we can experience God's Word in community every Sunday morning as it's read and proclaimed from the pulpit. And it's important. We talked about that last week. But we also offer discipleship opportunities for people of all ages and stages in life, through Sunday school, through Wednesday night, through those other opportunities. And when we take advantage of that, when we come together and hear God's Word taught and proclaimed, when we study and discuss it together, we're allowing God to use His people to speak truth into our lives. And that helps to shape us into Christ-likeness. It helps us to be pruned. It helps the garden of our heart to be weeded. It helps the stone to be chipped away so the image of Christ can shine through. Small groups shape us. But secondly, small groups shake us. Have you ever had experience in your life that left you shook? Maybe it was a, a car accident. Maybe it was that you thought you lost something extremely valuable. Maybe it's that a friend or a family member was diagnosed with cancer. These kinds of situations can be scary. 
They are certainly unpleasant, but you know what? They can also wake us up from complacency and remind us to drive more carefully and put down the phone. To remind us to value the people in our lives and not take them for granted. To cherish the small, everyday moments in our lives to take better care of our own health. We often need in our lives things to shake us and to wake us up. We need that spiritually. We need to be shook. We need to wake up and open our eyes to remind us to resist a particular temptation. To overcome a certain character flaw. To focus on what is truly important and eternal. Why would, not, why would I not want to be in a small group, in a community of people who are going to be genuinely interested in my well-being and challenge me and set a high bar of expectation of Christ-likeness for me and encourage me to strive for it and hold me accountable to practice what I preach, to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, to remind me of my identity in Christ and that I am deeply loved no matter what. Why would I not want to be a part of that? Now, don't get me wrong. We don't get it right every time. In fact, we get it wrong quite often. Because Christian relationships can be messy. Because we're not perfect. Amen? We're all sinners who are continuously being put back together by the grace of God every day. We are not yet there. We have not arrived. We are pressing on toward that goal. We are in that process of being made into the likeness of Jesus. I believe that this church is a loving community of people and that we regularly need to comfort and challenge one another. We need to shake one another. And I want to share with you just a few ways that we can do that. That we can shake each other from complacency, challenge each other to grow, and care and comfort for each other when life shakes us. The first is that we help each other identify and defeat sin in our lives. That's one way a small group can shake you. James 5.16 commands us to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other. At the end of that chapter, he goes on to say that anyone who brings back to the truth someone who's wandered away, it's like you've saved them from death and you've covered over a multitude of sins. One pastor and author explained it this way. He said, one of the great things about living as a part of a community is that in community, people walk all over your idols. People press your buttons. That's when we tend to respond with bitterness, rage, and so on. And that gives us opportunities to spot our idolatrous desires. That's not pleasant, is it? It's not pleasant to have people step on your toes. To have people call you out on the junk in your life. But you know, I need people who love me enough to hold up the mirror of God's Word in front of my face even when I don't want to look at it. To make me face up to the things I'd rather ignore. I need people who are willing to speak the truth to me in love. Don't you? We can help each other identify and defeat sin in our lives when we're in that kind of small group setting that we allow each other to speak truth into each other's lives and to hold each other accountable. But secondly, small groups shake us when we help each other mature in Christ-likeness. I want to look at uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Uh, and Paul says there, he says that, uh, that Jesus, he himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. 
And why did God give this to the church? He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until, so here's the goal, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. In other words, Jesus is our standard. Not, your, not a deacon, not the pastor, not your Sunday school teacher. Jesus is the standard that we're aiming for. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. That's those false teachers we learned about in Jude. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Through doing life together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can do this. We can attain to that full measure of Christ. We can encourage each other and pray for each other and spur one another on in love and good deeds. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22-23, right? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How many of those qualities could you really develop and demonstrate in isolation? You're stranded on a desert island. How much of that fruit of the Spirit could you really develop and demonstrate by yourself? I would say none of them. But when you've committed to love someone that maybe gives you a pretty good reason not to love them, but you choose to love them anyway, that's the fruit of love. When people don't exactly do things the way you think they should be done or as quick as you think they should be done, that's where you develop the fruit of patience. Amen? We develop these qualities, this Christ-likeness. I heard that, amen. I appreciate that. Let that child be an example to all of us. The fruit of the Spirit is only developed in the context of Christian community. The, the New Testament reading this morning, that's another list that Paul gives us in Colossians 3. He talks about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, love, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Again, these are spiritual qualities that reflect the image of Christ that can only happen in the context of relationships with other people. Paul acknowledges time and again that conflict is going to happen in churches. When iron sharpens iron, sparks are going to fly. Amen? It's going to happen. When God uses other people to chip away at our hard hearts and peel away our pride, when He sharpens our dull edges and smooths out our rough edges, sometimes God does that through the poor choices and decisions of other people, doesn't He? It's like what uh, Joseph said about his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Yes, God sometimes takes the bad choices and actions and words of, of maybe well-meaning people, but brothers and sisters in Jesus, God can use those things to work on us. It's sort of like a marriage. I talked about weddings last week. And when you're at a, a, a wedding, two people stand in front of other people and before God. They're before God, their family, and their friends. And they make these vows to each other to love each other and not give up on each other. Why do they do that? Because it's easy to stay committed to your spouse in good times, in times of health and wealth, right? 
But when times are tough, when you're dealing with a long-term illness, when you're dealing with financial stress, our sinful natures tend to tell us to bail. Right? To get out. To look after number one. Our feelings for our spouse aren't necessarily enough in those bad times. We need our sacred vows to hold us accountable to the person that we've committed our life to. And we need family and friends who love us enough to hold us accountable to those vows. Listen, the same is true in church. Because we are going to rub each other the wrong way. I've got to tell you, some of you have rubbed me the wrong way. I'm not going to name names. And I've rubbed some of you the wrong way. I've named that name. We're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to sin against each other. That's why Paul, time and again throughout his letters, gives us these one another commandments, right? To love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, be patient with one another, look out for one another. Because life together isn't easy. It's sometimes painful. It requires sacrifice and humility. But you know what? It's worth it. Because... When life shakes us, the third thing here is that we care for one another in those difficult times. Yeah, we might rub each other the wrong way, but when times are tough, we come and we put an arm around each other and we love each other and we support one another. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God says you're going to have difficult times, but He promises never to leave us alone. He promises to see us through those times of trial and troubles. He's going to help us to endure the suffering. He even promises to use them for our good and for His glory. You might even remember in James chapter 1, James tells us to consider it pure joy when we face difficulties because through them we may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. In other words, God not only uses His Word and Christian relationships, but God uses times of difficulty to shape us and shake us into Christ-likeness. And one of the ways He uses those times of difficulties to help us grow spiritually is the relationships in our life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, comforts us in our troubles. It doesn't stop there. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. In other words, God comforts us not just for our own sake, but so that through us He can extend that comfort to other people. He comforts us and through us into the lives of others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. And what I've seen is that small group relationships within the church are some of the best ways for us to find that comfort and that support in times of difficulty. And I love seeing how our Sunday school classes do that, how they come alongside their members. They take a meal to someone who's just got out of the hospital or who's recently had a baby. They sit with someone through their grief. They give someone a ride to the doctor. They bless a struggling family with financial help or they cry with someone whose marriage is falling apart. Our Sunday school classes do such a great job 
of caring for each other and bearing each other's burdens and reminding each other of our identity and our calling in Christ Jesus that we aren't alone and that God can take even the worst things in our life and somehow use them for good. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 2, we are to carry each other's burdens and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. Small groups not only can shape us more into Christ's image and shake us from our complacency and remind us of who we are and how we're to live, but finally, small groups help show, help us show Jesus. Last week we looked at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 to talk about the importance of gathering together with God's people for worship. But this, I think, this verse also applies to small groups as well. Listen to what he says. The author says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on, encourage one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day, as we see the return of Christ approaching. The church, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're continuing to carry out His healing touch to a hurting world. And together... We can pull energy and resources and talents to accomplish far more together than any of us could ever accomplish on our own. That's the value of being the body of Christ. My hand can't do very much sitting on the floor by itself without the rest of my body attached to it, right? But some of us think that we can just kind of be a hand out there on our own doing things for Jesus. It's kind of, you know, it's like the thing in the Adams family, right? It doesn't work that way. It's comical or creepy, one or the other. But it's not effective. Now, we're going to dive into this specifically next week. But for today, let me just say that most Christians that I know who are actively serving God in ministry, they're out in the world sharing the gospel and making disciples, they're also faithful members of small group Bible studies. And that's because small groups are great places to discover our gifts, to be encouraged to explore God's calling, to work together, to meet people's needs, to do good works together for God's glory and invite others to follow Jesus. Small groups are just a great environment for doing those things. Discipleship is a twofold journey. There's the outward progress of the gospel as we serve people and lead people toward a relationship with Jesus and the inward progress in the gospel as we grow closer to Jesus every day. And we can grow in Christ-likeness by partnering with God on our own through spiritual disciplines and by walking the journey together with our brothers and sisters in Jesus to encourage us, to challenge us, and to care for us. But you know, before you can even do that, the first thing you have to do is start the journey. You have to begin with a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to God the Father is through Him. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you begun this journey of spiritual growth by putting your faith and trust in who Jesus is and what He has done for you? Do you know, before we ever come to this table, do you know what this table represents, that Jesus Christ gave His life and shed His blood for you? that you might be forgiven and made clean and be given new life in Him. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to stand down front in just a minute. I invite you to come and to make that decision. But then have you committed to God's family, the church? 
We're not saved to be orphans. We're saved as members of a family. Are you committed to His church? Have you been baptized? That's a way to publicly profess that, hey, I know Jesus. He's come in my life, and I want to be a part of this family of faith. Have you done that? If you have done that, maybe you need to come and God is calling you and your family to move your membership to this church, that this is where He would have you to worship, grow, serve, and go. We would welcome you to come. But then finally, maybe God is calling you to commit to doing life together with a small group here at First Baptist Church. Whatever God is speaking to you. Let's do what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Let's take a moment as we sing and stand. If you'll stand with me, let's examine ourselves before we come to this table. And whatever God is saying to you, I'll be standing down front. The altar is open. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for Your Word, for its truth, for its power in our lives. We're thankful for Christian community. God, it is often through other people that You help us to truly understand Your Word, that You help us to see the areas of our life that we need to work on and and release and surrender to You. God, I pray You would help us to grow as a body of believers that do comfort and care for and challenge one another and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. May we be obedient to Your Spirit's voice today. In Jesus' name, Amen.